And Ravi, can you come up and join us, please? I do want to thank you for coming here, and I want to welcome you. I've been also asked um, to correct you, if that's okay. Please do. do. (laughs) Um, I did say to the others yesterday that the Scots basically invented everything good. And when you were here yesterday, you quoted from the from the Declaration of Independence about the the pursuit of life, happiness, and whatever. I don't know it. You know it. (laughs) Uh, And I was asked to point out that, in actual fact, that wonderful quote originally came from St. Andrews because it came from Lex Rex, and it was written by Samuel Rutherford in his book Lex Rex, and it was picked up on. So the Scots even invented the American Constitution. You are very welcome. Please address us. I shall resist comment because I won't be here for the next correction. I'm leaving leaving early tomorrow morning. Uh, Thank you very much. I have no doubt uh, how much of indebtedness. Actually, on the serious note, they tell you that um, the the entire making of the... um, American mind in terms of its law and so on. They said there were really three uh, cultures that converged into that making, and that was uh, the English culture, English-Scottish, Irish, whatever, all of them together, uh, so I don't create any more problems here, but uh, also from Jerusalem and Rome. The convergence of those three great cultures ultimately made the ethos and the judicial framework of the United States. Today is the last day of about a, what, about a 22-day trip. We we began in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where we make our home on the first of this month. We left and went on to uh, India, and from India on to do a lectureship at Oxford University, and then here my wife's been with me through that whole time, and my traveling associate, uh, Crin, uh, one or two others, and then some have joined us from the United States. So after three weeks of uh, speaking uh, who knows how many times and meeting who knows how many people, uh, we'll be heading back home tomorrow at least for a week before undertaking on the next journey. And sometimes when you stand up at the end of a long trip, you don't know whether you're in the body or out of the body, uh, but you're pretty sure you're there and very soon uh, will be on your way. It's often attributed to Einstein, but I understand it's really not correct. Einstein wasn't the one to whom it happened. Some other great professor at Harvard supposedly was very absent-minded, but he was visiting uh, Princeton or somewhere, and that's why the story is often associated with Einstein. He was walking along when a student in a little golf cart was uh, moving at a small pace, and he saw this professor coming, and he looked at him and said to him, would you like me to show you around? And the professor said, yes, I'm visiting. He'd love to be shown around. So he drove him around for about 20, 30 minutes, and then he looked at the young man and said, you better get me back from where you picked me up. I need to be on to my next appointment, I think. So the young man brought him back, and just before the professor got off, he said, tell me, when you picked me up, was I coming from that direction going here, or was I coming from here going there? And the young guy said, I think you are coming from that direction, heading in this way, this way. The professor said, thank you very much. That means I've already had my lunch. (laughs) That's about the state you reach after three weeks on the road. Art Linkletter was was, uh, entertaining at a convalescent home, quite the entertainer in America. And um, he was walking around this convalescent home property, and he just uh, saw a woman pushing a walker, and he waved at her, at which point she looked at him and said, do you know who I am? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, looked, uh, you know, he looked at her and said, do you know who I am? And she said to him, no, but if you go to the front desk, they'll be glad to tell you. <laughs> when we reach that stage, we know it is time to bring the sermon to a commencement or a beginning or an end, And then we move on, fly out early tomorrow morning, heading back, as I said, uh, to our homes. Do pray for us as we will be praying for you. It's been wonderful to be here in Scotland, albeit for just a couple of days. And I'm glad you won the game yesterday 
David, I shall, uh, I'm sure I shall hear from you if that streak continues. If we don't hear from you, we shall know what happened. <laughs> all, all good things must come to an end. But uh, as I mentioned yesterday, Robert Murray McShane has been one of my heroes from the days of my early conversion. And to think that I'm actually here in that church is uh, one of those things that dreams are made of. And uh, I'm very grateful to the Lord that that dream has actually come to pass. David visited us at our office in Atlanta some months ago, had a wonderful lunch with him and today to be here and then meet his family and meet all of you. Thank you for coming together and making this a very special weekend. Some of the hymns you've been singing uh, are really very appropriate in terms of the theme that I want to talk to you about tonight. I wish I could say that the sermon uh, title has come from me, but it is not. I borrow it from a book that I read from by the famed G. Campbell Morgan many years ago. It is on the book of Hosea, and the title of that book is called The Heart and the Holiness of God. I can assure you the sermon is not borrowed, but the title is. And I would like you just to bear for a few moments with me. You may not even need to turn to it because it's a bit of a difficult passage to read, but I'd like to read it for you and then enter into my theme for tonight that I have entitled The Heart and the Holiness of God. This book is written by the prophet Hosea somewhere in the late 700s before Christ. And it is on the, at the time where the kingdom is about to... Uh, collapse, at least the northern kingdom is going to collapse, and the southern kingdom thinks they are pretty secure. If you recall in the dating procedure around the mid-1400s before Christ, uh, Moses was involved in leading the people from bondage into the promised land. God gave them what the prescription was for living a life of godliness. If you want to see what God intended for nations, all you need to do is turn to the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. And in that 8th chapter of Deuteronomy, God speaking to them gives them the blueprint of humility, spirituality, and faith. But they were led astray primarily by their leaders who had lost focus. Anytime you see a nation getting into trouble you probably will be wise to look at the leadership and see where the heart of leadership is, where their values are, what their ideals are. And there were three particular leaders, one after another, that led the nation into a form of belief, having abandoned the faith of their fathers, and trouble was looming on the horizon. In Solomon, we saw the untamed passions of a gifted man. In Rehoboam, we saw wanton power in a weak man. And in Jeroboam, we saw the unteachable temperament of a privileged man. Untamed passions of a gifted person, wanton power in a weak person, and the unteachable temperament in a privileged person. That alone would take a whole sermon. When your passions are untamed and when your power is abused and wanton and you are unteachable as a person, the beginning of the end is set in place. That's the way it was. You saw Solomon with all of his glory and all of his privileges and all of his capacities and yet he began to lead the people through sheer neglect and untamed passions in his own life. Rehoboam came along and started to take the advice of younger men who really wanted the thrill of power rather than looking back upon history and learning the lessons that history had actually taught them. The old aphorism from Santiana holds true that he who refuses to learn from history is forced to repeat its mistakes. And so Rehoboam went through the abuse of power, began to see the disintegration go even further. Then Jeroboam came along and manifested a temperament that was unreachable and unteachable 
even with the sustained effort of God and the prophetic voices. Now you've got in microcosm an extraordinary situation in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that is in the home of a man called Hosea. While God had shown it in the macrocosmic setting of history itself, now he is narrowing down the, the, the venue of what he's teaching them. And it takes place in a parsonage. Hosea's wife, Gomer, became a prostitute. And having raised three children in that home, all of whose names symbolize something negative, you begin to see the tragedy unfolding. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Loruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Loruhamah, Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Nobody selects the names of their children this way. You don't want to call judgment come to breakfast. No more mercy, clean up your room. You're not my people. Have you done your homework? You know, every time you name your children, you're trying to, trying to point to something greater. Generally, that's how names are given. You'd call your, your children faith or hope or charity or some historic figure that brings back a memory of greatness. Imagine this home. But something extraordinary is being taught here. One of the greatest books on the love of God is in this particular book. Let me unfold it for you, beginning with some words of poetry and a word of testimony. It was C.S. Lewis who describes his own conversion in these words. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, Feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared and at last come up, had come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not see then what is the most shining and obvious thing? The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compelle intrare compel them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Remember the words of Francis Thompson? I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him. Up the stayed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, that followed after. And the poem ends with these words, Ah, poorest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee that dravest me. See, Francis Thompson was a drug addict running from God. 
and in his masterpiece, The Hound of Heaven, he shows again and again how God followed him, hounded him, pursued him, till he recognized that he was driving love away from his life when he drove God away from his heart. This book of Hosea shows an extraordinary story of the love of God. The first thing we see in here is that God's love is totally unmerited. You can never earn the love of God. This is so different to any other religious worldview. If you were to stop an honest, devout Muslim and ask him the question, how do you know you will ever enter into paradise? He will answer it for you this way. And I'm not making a caricature. I'm not speaking disparagingly. I'm reflecting it in its facts. This is what the Muslim will answer you. My good deeds will be weighed against my bad deeds. And if my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, I will enter into paradise, but it's still, insha'Allah, it is the will of God then. If you ask a Hindu, how do you ultimately attain nirvana? The Hindu will tell you, every birth is a rebirth. Every bad deed has to be recompensed for. Every life is a payment for the previous life. And the karmic circle goes on and on and on till you have fully paid and then you break off this cycle of rebirths. Same thing in Buddhism. I have loved you, says the Lord, in the Old Testament. And he brings it to bear in the consummate expression of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This gift of God is not merited. You know, about 200 years after Hosea, find this absolutely fascinating. 200 years after Hosea comes Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is coming on the eve of the collapse of the southern kingdom. Hosea comes on the eve of the collapse of the northern kingdom. And in the book of Hosea, the nation and the people are compared to that of a harlot who'd gone and sold herself to others because she was being paid by others. 200 years after Hosea comes Ezekiel. And in a parable in the 16th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, we see this. God says, I was passing through the highways of this land one day, and I heard the cry of a little baby. I walked into the bushes, and I saw this newborn babe, so newly born, even the umbilical cord was only freshly severed, and she was covered with the afterbirth. I took her to the waters, and I washed her body. And then I left her in careful, compassionate care. Many years went by, I passed through this land again. And I saw a beautifully attractive young woman. I loved her. I was drawn to her. And I offered her my hand in marriage. You ask, who am I talking about? I'm talking about you, O Israel, said God. You were the little baby I rescued in the wilderness. I washed, took care of you, wrapped you in pieces of cloth, and left you in compassionate care. You were cared for. Then you grew up and you became a beautiful, attractive young person. I offered my hand in marriage to you, and you agreed. Now that we have been married for so long, O Israel, he says, listen, folks, listen, here's what he says. I wish I could call you a prostitute, because under the circumstances, that would almost be complimentary to you, because a prostitute justifies herself by saying she's paid by her lovers to lie with them. Israel, you have become worse. You have paid your lovers to lie with you. I look at the Western world today, and I ask myself the question, where did God fail them? Where did God fail America? 
Where did he fail? Canada. Where did he fail? The United Kingdom. Why did these cultures trade away the heart of what framed their ethos? And you look at the nations now in total disarray, confused, unsure of what they believe. I marvel at it. I left the land of my birth in India when I was 20 and moved to the West. And so the last four decades I have spent there and watched the nation spiral down with a complete loss of the sense of the transcendent. And so while the motto of Oxford University is the Lord is my light, Richard Dawkins can travel around calling people idiots for believing in God. And yet God says to you, I've loved you. What more could I have done for you that I've not already done? The love of God is something that is totally unmerited and yet so often squandered. I remember the first time I became a father. We have three children. Our oldest daughter, Sarah, uh, shortly after she was born, uh, went into a very critical situation. Without going into the complexities, it was uh, sort of in lay terms, she became allergic to her own blood. And so it's being destroyed by the minute. I'd only held her in my arms for a fraction of a minute or two. And I went home that night just celebrating fatherhood. Until late that night when I talked to my wife, she said, Sarah's developed a problem. And they are taking her away to put her under these fluorescent lights and so-called other things. We won't be able to hold her for some time. And they're going to try and whip this problem in the next four to five days. And I remember that moment, all of a sudden, the extraordinary sense of knowing what it felt like to be a father and yet on the verge of uncertainty about the life of this child. Now, if you'd asked me, do you love her? You know as well as I do, the answer would be an absolute yes. But if you'd put her with 30 or 40 other children at that time, I would have had a struggle identifying the little one because it barely held her for a few moments. But something in the makeup of the very human framework assures you you treat that life with value. And so we prayed for a little baby today with cancer whose parents have absolutely no doubt of their love for little Oliver. You and I are the creation of God. He has that extraordinary sense of value and love for you as an individual. And it is not merited. It's because of who you are as he has made you. And therefore his love is shed equally regardless of your capacity or mine. But not only does he love us in an unmerited sense. That love grows and is built in a relationship. And so the first thing I see in the book of Hosea is God's extraordinary love. God's incredible love. And a love that grows on the base of relationship. Some years ago, uh, an Olympic athlete that I shall leave unnamed phoned my office and he said, can I come and see you? He didn't know I knew that much about him, but when I heard his name, we knew who he was. And tower muscle-bound guy who'd won an Olympic medal. And I didn't know what he was coming to talk about. But he'd heard me on the radio and talk about my own struggle in my earlier days. I won't go into it now. And he said, I just, I, I'm fly. He flew over 2,000 miles to come and have just, just to have lunch. And we sat across the table, this muscle-bound guy, looking at him, just admiring his physique. And he said to me, do you know why I'm here? I said, no. And he tells, tells me his story. 
how he was in the Olympic Games, how from the time he was 12 he trained for this event, and his father had completely discouraged him and thought he would never make it. And then in order to take the place of another athlete, they put him in, and here he arrives at the Olympics, and all of a sudden he wins the first heat, wins the second heat, wins the quarters, wins the semis, and now is in the finals, and the world was looking upon him to really pull off an upset and win the gold. Almost a little bit like an Eric Little type of story. And so here he is, and he says, Ravi, the gun was about to sound for the final. I couldn't believe the dream of my life was coming true. But I lost my concentration for a fraction of a second, and I lost a stride. And I ended up with what could have been the gold, but I just got the bronze. I said, that's big enough, isn't it? He said, yes, but that's not what I want to talk about. He said... The fraction of a moment in which I lost my span was I asked myself, I wonder if my father is watching. You look at a strong, solid athlete who amongst the hundreds of thousands, yea, millions who are watching him would have guessed for that moment that his one desire at that time was that his father be watching him. In that final. Your heart and my heart hungers for love and belongingness. And your heavenly father says to you, I'm watching over you. I love you. God's love. But God quickly moves on to give his heartache. And his heartache says this, that your goodness is like a morning cloud and like the early dew it goes away. What is he really saying? He says, you know, the problem many times with those who claim to follow me is that they make commitments. They could come to the altar. They could get on their bedside or whatever it is and pray. And they make the commitments. But like the morning dew, it suddenly vanishes. They never really follow through. And God says, like Gomer who came back and apologized but was gone again the next morning, my people keep making commitments they really do not honor. Anybody wants a spouse like that? Does anybody want a spouse like that? With repeated commitments and repeated promises and repeated betrayals. Your goodness is like the morning cloud and like the early dew. It goes away. Now, the illustration I give to you has a few hazards in it. And I don't want to talk too much about the hazards, but I just want to talk about the fact that took place. And it, this happened again when we were in India recently, two weeks ago. My wife and my colleagues and I were being driven around by a guy who was the taxi driver. We used the same car every day. The guy was 23. I said to him, are you married? He said, no. I said, do you plan to be? And he starts smiling. He said, actually, my parents are in another village this very day to find a bride for me. And by the time we left, three days had gone by. And we said, have, you, have they succeeded? And he said, yes. Uh, I said, uh, how old is she? He said, uh, 17 or 18. I said, do you know her? He said, no. I said, have you met her? Then, no. I said, but you'll be marrying her, Hanji. Yes, sir. I said, do you get a vote in this? <laughs> and he said, in Hindi, naam ke vaste, in name only. I get a vote in name only. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, so when do you think you'll get married? He said, maybe next March or so. This is November. They've gone, found a girl in a village, and they've told him they've met up with her and they like her, and so the marriage plans are underway for March. My brother got married that way. He was a computer systems engineer. He sent my father to Bombay to find a bride for him, and uh, he had not met her, and the whole thing was settled on the phone. And I said, what on earth are you going to do once you see her and say, good grief, what have I done? <laughs> well, she looks at you and thinks, hoping she's seeing your brother and not you. <laughs> you know, anybody in a biodata can look very good. Believe me, you find a good photographer, I found them. They can make a speaker look very good till the speaker comes out with a halo on top and you say, what happened? 
And I remember my brother saying one thing to me at that point. I said, what's going to happen when you see and it all falls awry, you know, falls kaput? And he said to me, when you will to love somebody, you can. And that's the truth. When you will to love somebody, you can. You know how we do romance? All on emotion. And unfortunately, how many of them do romance is all on will. And the best is when you can bring the two together and have that emotion in your heart stirred and have that will which will remain true and faithful in all of its commitments. What's happened today in our homes? The will is gone. The will is gone. And you know, it is fascinating to me even in a world where there may not be a deep spiritual commitment of any sort, a la Tiger Woods. That the victim of a betrayal sees the moral failure when the will is dishonored. God's gift to you is that commitment that he expects you and me to have. And so I say to you, have you brought your will to him and surrendered it to him? It's what he's calling you to. Let not your goodness be like a morning cloud and the early dew going away. Tonight may be a night God is calling you to take a look at where you are and how far you've gone. You know, in 2004, I spoke in Wales in a church. They were commemorating the Welsh revival of a hundred years ago. Evan Roberts is preaching. There was one man in the church I spoke to who hadn't been in church for 25 years. You say to yourself, where were you? I said to David of a lunch today, when I read the biography, I read the biography of Robert Murray McShane. There had to be people around at that time who prayed for this church, who are long gone. They had people like you in mind when they prayed for this church. That men and women like you would rise up and bring to Scotland the fresh flame of the gospel every day. My colleague Stuart McAllister and I sat one day after he'd just come back from Scotland and he'd been on a preaching tour and tears running down his face and he said, I can't believe what's happened in my homeland where there's loss of the youth in the churches. But ladies and gentlemen, you're God's hope. He's trusting you to let that will never die down. I look at the young people around here. Your courage is going to be needed. Your witness is going to be needed. Your perseverance is going to be needed. That will that is crucified with Christ that remains unflappable and pursuing. God's love, God's heartache, thirdly and quickly, God's response he said, I'll beat you as a moth. I'll beat you as a lion. I'll remove my presence and depart from you. First God tells him of his love. Then he tells him of his disappointment. Then he tells him of the judgment. A moth weakens. A lion tears apart. He said, and none of that happens. I'll remove my presence and ultimately depart from you. Do you ever get that feeling that God's wisdom has gone from so many of our societies? I look at America, where we are. State of California, in this recent election, this is one state that wants to illegalize the McDonald's Happy Meals because it's not nutritious enough. At the same time, they're making a proposition to legalize marijuana. Same election. As somebody quipped, put the marijuana in the McDonald's Happy Meal and make it a very happy meal. <laughs> See the point? Muggeridge was right. We've educated ourselves into imbecility. When this 
oil spill took place in the Gulf, in Florida. It was tragedy to see how the animal world was affected, how birds were being picked up and sea creatures were picked up, bathed in oil and on the side of the water. Pathetic. There's no way to look at that and not weep over what happens to that. And so the environmentalists got into it and bemoaned all this tragedy of all that was being victimized in the animal world and I'm all for that sympathy and cry out also but do these same people cry out for the millions of babies that are aborted every year where is their tears for that we've got ethicists one of them at Princeton University who is saying up to a year old a baby should actually be expendable and done away with because a parent after within a year ought to be able to make up made their mind whether this is a baby you really want or not. You know. These are our ethicists. As one person said, ours is an age where ethics has become obsolete. It is superseded by science, deleted by psychology, dismissed as emotive by philosophy. It is drowned in compassion, evaporates into aesthetics, and retreats before relativism. The usual moral distinction between good and bad is simply drowned in a model and emotion in which we feel more sympathy for the murderer than for the murdered, for the adulterer than for the betrayed, and in which we have actually begun to believe the real guilty party, the one who somehow caused it all, is not the victim, but the perpetrator of the crime. The one who somehow caused it all is the victim, and not the perpetrator of the crime. So the victim is to blame. They caused it to happen. Plato said, justice is the firmest pillar of good government, which means if the firmest pillar begins to collapse, a culture collapses. So I ask you, are we a confused lot or what? When we start getting this imbalance in ethics itself, and so I bring to you God's love, God's heartache, God's response, I'll beat you as a moth, I'll beat you as a lion, I'll remove my presence and depart from you. And so I go into the academy and I wonder, has God been evicted there? We go into our homes and wonder, has God been evicted there? You go into the judiciaries and wonder, has God been evicted there? You know, in parts of the United States, it has actually become illegal to sing Christmas carols during Christmas time. You say, really? Really? The American Civil, the American Civil Liberties Union can go after you if in a public school you sing a Christmas carol at Christmas time. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, you see the darkness just growing and growing and growing. You start off with God's love. You see God's heartache. You see God's response. But then you see this magnificent ending, God's hope. I will be to you, he says. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has departed from, from you. I will heal your backsliding. I will love you freely, for my anger has departed from you. And as I bring this message to an end, I say to you that God's hope for you and God's hope for me is that as far gone as we are, he gives us a chance at starting again. He gives us the renewal and gives us the hope. God's hope for Scotland is the same as God's hope for America, is the same as God's hope for the whole world. And you know how it begins? It may begin with one person. It may begin with one person. You know, interestingly enough, when William Wilberforce was fighting for the abolition of slavery, even somebody as committed to the cause as John Wesley looked at Wilberforce and said to him, you're wasting your time. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Wilberforce wasn't going to give up. He was determined and determined and determined and gave over half a century of his life till he was on his deathbed when the news was brought to him 
that the emancipation has taken place. When Saul of Tarsus was put into a basket and lowered over a wall, nobody knew what they had in their basket except God, one who was going to write one-third of the New Testament. When Moses was rescued as a little baby, nobody knew what they had in that little basket, somebody who was going to rescue a nation. I don't know who you are as a person, but God knows who you are. I often look back upon my life and I ask myself the question, God, when I lay in a hospital bed having attempted to take my own life because my father had looked me in the eye shortly before that and said, you're going to be an embarrassment to the family. I said, God, if you had not been there, what would have happened to my life? And yet one day I found myself in a country I shall leave unnamed, my wife and all know whom I'm talking about. He was a man who was one of the lead voices in eradicating the drug problem in South America, and they were after him. I got up that morning, and I looked out my hotel room, and I saw tanks surrounding it. I started to take the newspaper out of the hallway, and I saw bomb-sniffing dogs in the hallway and armed machine gun people roaming through the whole hotel. So I said to somebody, I said, what's happening here? He said, somebody very high-powered whose life is threatened is coming in here. I didn't realize he was my guest for breakfast. He'd come to see me. We had breakfast together, and he looked at me in the eye, and he said, Mr. Zacharias, what answer do you have for our problem in this country being torn apart by drugs. I said, I have one answer to start with. Have you solved the problem of the struggle of evil in your own heart? He's a tall guy. He looked at me and he said, I don't think I can tell you the answer is yes. I said, would you like to have the answer? Yes. He said, yes. I said, come into my room then. And my interpreter was my colleague on our staff at that time. He and this man and I walked into my bedroom. The bed wasn't even made. And he sat down on that bed, and I sat down. There. I sat down on the bed. He sat down on the chair and my interpreter. And I had the privilege of seeing that man bow his head and give his life to Jesus Christ right there. Just about three weeks ago, I met the president of that country. And I said, do you know this man? And I recounted the whole story to him. He was in a state of shock. He said, you are talking about one of the most wonderful men in my country. And that's how it all happened. God's love, God's heartache, God's response, and God's hope. It's you. Can I take three or four minutes and end this message? I want to tell you one of my favorite stories. And you'll be thrilled at it. I never tire of repeating it. In 1971, when I was in my 20s, I'd been invited to speak in Vietnam. And I was, I was my 20s, my interpreter was 17 years old. So cumulative age was about 40, and we were traveling through the country preaching and God brought revival in the country. I didn't realize that. All I knew was thousands were coming to Christ. And years later, I'm reading a book on the history of the church in Vietnam, and it says it all began with two young men, one in his 20s and one 17, who traveled to... I said, this guy's talking about us. It's true. Who is this boy? He's about 17 years old. His name is Hien. We traveled through the country, saw thousands come to Christ, and I hugged him at the airport in Saigon before we left. Actually, we'd taken off from Nha Trang and gave him a hug, and then Saigon, and I flew out. Seventeen years went by, and I get a telephone call. Brother Ravi. I knew that intonation. I said, Hien, am I talking to you? He said, yes. I said, where are you calling from? He said, from California. I said, what on earth are you doing here? 
He said, have you got a few minutes to talk? I said, uh, I've got as much time as you want. It's 11 o'clock at night for me. I was in Vancouver, British Columbia at that time speaking. And we started, he said, Brother Ravi, after you left, the Viet Cong took over. As you know, Vietnam fell. I was arrested. I was put into prison. They thought I'd been a CIA agent. I told them I was not, but they didn't believe me. And they put me in these horrible conditions. They wouldn't let me read anything in English when they found out I was a Christian. It was just French and Vietnamese, French and Vietnamese, Marx and Engels, Marx and Engels. Morning, noon, and night, they wore me out till finally they knocked God out of me almost. And I went to bed one night and I said to myself, God, you're not here. I don't see you. I am struggling. They have taken everything away from me. Brother Ravi, I thought of you many times and your sermons and all its impact. But all of that was beginning to wear thin. And I finally said, I can't believe this anymore. And I made a commitment that night. When I wake up the next morning, I was not going to pray again for the first time in so many years. I woke up the next morning, the commanding officer came, assigned me to the latrines to clean the dirty bathrooms in this prison. He said, you've never seen anything so filthy in your life. He said, I walked in and saw all the dirt and all of this around in the floor. And I was just tying a bandage around my nostrils so I could even breathe in there, slushing this water around and all that stuff around and... I looked into a bucket to throw it out, and I saw toilet paper used, newspaper used as toilet paper. As I was emptying out, I thought I saw one piece of paper in English. But I didn't want to pick it up. I was not allowed to. I quickly looked around, washed it off, hosed it off, put it into my hip pocket. I went back to my room, and late that night, when everybody was asleep in my room, under my mosquito net, I got a flashlight and shone it on this. And in the right corner, it said, Romans chapter 8. I said, where on earth did this come from? And he starts reading, for who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall pestilence, shall this, shall that. No, in all these things, I'm more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he went on and began to read all things working together for good to them that love God, that are called according to his purpose. He said, I started to cry. I said, Lord, you wouldn't let me go for 24 hours without talking to you. I beg your forgiveness. And he said, I woke up that next morning, went to see the commanding officer and said, do you mind if I clean the latrines again today? (laughs) He went back. Romans chapter 10 or 11. He's going through the New Testament every day. The book belonged. The New Testament was given to the commanding officer. He didn't believe it. He was tearing it out page after page, using it as toilet paper. He was washing it, using it for his devotions. Finally, he said, they released me. And with 52 others, I started to build a boat. And as we were building this boat, just four days away from departure, four young men, Viet Cong, come knocking on my door. And said to me, are you trying to escape? He said, no. So are you telling us the truth? Yeah. You're not trying to escape? No. These fellows leave. He said, they went away and I said, here I go again trying to run my own life. He said, I prayed a prayer that I hoped would never be answered. I said, God, if you want me to tell them the truth, bring them back. Hours before he was to escape with 52 others, there's a knock on the door. These four boys, armed to the teeth with their machine guns, grabbed him by the collar, rammed him against a wall. Said, you're trying to escape, aren't you? He said, yes. Are you going to put me back in prison? They said, no, we want to go with you. (laughs) The four of them got onto that boat. And he said, Brother Ravi, we were on the high seas in a storm and we would have capsized. But these four guys were brilliant mariners. They brought us to safety into Thailand. I was made a United Nations refugee and I got a visa. I'm here in America now studying at Berkeley, doing my business degree. He then came to Atlanta to visit us. Spent time with our family, met some of my colleagues who are at work who remember him coming. And he came to ask me if I would officiate at his wedding. He'd met a beautiful young Vietnamese gal in California and was going to be married to her. And he looked at my kids and he said to them at the kitchen table, You know, you're always going to be tempted to play God and to do it your way. 
you'll regret it. He said, God wants to be intimate with you and bless you and take care of you. Trust him, even in the most difficult times. And so I want to say to you here in Dundee, the prayers and the preaching of McShane and Burns and others will not go to waste. There are those who've labored long and hard, and God's counting on you because he loves you. He wants that will to be committed so that he can give hope to your city, to the nation, and to the world. And he may have one of you in mind to do that, if not more than one of you. May that happen, and may God bless you. May I pray with you. While your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, first of all, I want to thank you all for being here. I want to thank especially those of you in political leadership. Yours is a difficult task, very difficult. And no matter what you do, it seems you can't win. May God give you special wisdom in tough decision times and the courage to stand for the truth. Some of you are in university, in academic circles, facing a hard time. Some of you, maybe your home is in trouble. Some of you wondering if God really has a personal desire to see you be that instrument. In the silence of these moments, I'm asking you to make a commitment to him to lay your will at his altar and ask him to do with you what is his perfect will, that you will surrender. Father, bless this group of people here, for every minister that has stood on this platform here and those who couldn't be here, for every church represented and every heartbeat that beats for you. Make that person an instrument that will triumph and see your light shine a bright and a glorious light in this land to dispel the darkness. I think of the great ones you've raised up in this land. May their best days as a nation still be ahead with greater lights and greater voices and greater songwriters and greater preachers. Great because they love you and will see history change by your power. In Jesus' name. Amen.